0: Today we are joined by Dr. Katie Seving, and she is a professor and avian ecologist at the University of Florida, She's done some fascinating work in the lab on bird language and so welcome Katie glad to have you.
1: Yeah, it's really nice to see you again Lee. This will be fun.
0: I think the first thing is most people probably don't even know the general public about bird language and certainly your work. And I know you've been written up in some major publications and the New York Times, but again, a lot of people haven't seen that. So do you mind first just telling us about your background, how you got into this field of study?
1: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I've always loved the outdoors and I was going to be a vet for the longest time. And then, uh, then I got into college and I found that the uh, pre-vet, classes were full of, you know, people I didn't really relate to as well as people who wanted to be outside more. And, um, so anyway, I, I started working in a field called wildlife biology. Um, and I loved it. We were outside collecting data, you know, out in nature all the time. And, uh, I went on and went to grad school in that field and birds came about in my life more as a practical thing in this, in the sense that I got a lot of jobs doing bird work when I was, um, you know, in between, uh, in between my schooling. So I got really good at birds, partly just because there was a lot of work in birds. Um, so then once I became a prof and really interested in, in conducting research and stuff, I'm really interested in how bird communities respond to living with people. There's landscapes full of people and landscapes full of wildlife out there. And birds seem to be able to cope with people to some high degree. So, I got really interested in a lot of the features of birds that allowed them to live with people and um, conduct their lives, you know, alongside us. So, um, I got interested in bird language, though, because I had an undergrad whose dad was a really serious birder. In fact, he led nature tours, uh, bird watching tours, which, you know, are really intense. People who go on bird watching tours, they really just want to see a lot of birds. So, his dad was super type A and would bring um, the, the student's name was Gary Langham, and, and uh, they, his dad would bring Gary along with him, and Gary's job was when they went to the tropics or to California or anywhere with a birding group, uh, Gary's job was to pull out these, these recordings of the different species and play the species calls, and that would attract the birds to come close so that all the people in the group could see them. And uh, and Gary was in my class developing a research project one time, and he goes, you know, all those trips my dad brings me on, he goes, I love going anywhere in North America or Europe with him, because to bring birds in close, all we have to do is go, which in bird language is, is you know, a human version of it, is, we call it fishing, and fishing is what brings the birds in really close. He goes, but when we go to the tropics, like anywhere in Costa Rica or Venezuela or wherever, and you go in the woods, none of the birds pay attention to us at all. Which means then I have to pull up all these individual recordings to bring in the birds that the people want to see. And my dad was constantly yelling at me to get this tape in the player and play that back. And he goes, I hated going to the tropics because he was always on me. And I was never quick enough to get the birds in close enough for the people. He goes, so I loved when we could use fishing. So he wanted to do his research project on why fishing works. Why does it bring birds in, in North America, but not in South America? Uh, He had this funny term. He goes, you know, I always refer to the tropics as this thing, we call it the fishing black hole. Basically, you fish into the wilderness and nothing happens. So so it was a really uh, fun research topic for him. And he conducted a study that basically showed that the reason that birds are so interested in fishing and coming close is because in North America, we have a family of birds called, uh, well, chickadees and titmice, you know them, and their, their, their Latin family name is, is Paridae. So we refer to them as parrots for short. So the parids, including chickadees, titmice, and then in Europe, you have all the tit species. Um, these guys all have a call that they give when they see a perched owl or another dangerous animal that they want to bring attention to and draw in a lot of birds in order to chase them away, pishing sounds just like that call, and and the family paridae does not exist in South America. So the birds, what what it lets us let us understand is that the birds here in North America and Europe, where there are a lot of parrot species, have um, they've learned well over evolutionary time, they've learned um, you know come to understand the language of the parrots. So. Pishing brings in the birds because we sound like parrots who are talking about something really interesting to them which is the location of a dangerous predator. So um, so that whole thing he taught me basically and, and ever since then he's moved on to a lot of other things but I, I stayed really interested in, in chickadees and titmice and their language and the more I look at it, the more I find that they have basically a vocabulary for everything that happens out there in nature they talk about it in a way that if you know the language of the, of the chickadees and titmice, you can understand what they're talking about. They have an incredible vocal complexity.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I want to delve in more on that uh, as we go through here uh, or dive into that. Uh, just one thing for anyone listening, uh, just to be clear, and I know you pointed it out, but... Um, When she's referring to parrots, you're talking about that. It's not parrots (laughs) so in the tropics. I get that a lot of times. Uh, Yeah, I was actually in Costa Rica recently. Um, I have some family down there, and uh, I was out with an ornithologist. And it was just amazing, uh, because I knew this, obviously, from working with you, that – and and he was a bird guide, really good, and works for an NGO down there, uh, actually saving various uh, raptor species – And his pitching call was so good; it almost sounded like a chickadee. I mean, literally, I I had a hard time telling sometimes. And so, you know, it was just. And I'm not sure I would have ever realized that, you know, without all the work that you've done. But um, maybe you can talk a little bit too about, you know, some of the things that that has unlocked in terms of once that discovery was made and you know, why parrots are so important and, and some of the, the work that you've done in the lab uh, to kind of decipher that as well as some of, I know you have some colleagues at other universities who've also done some good work and and why other bird species are so dependent um, on these guys.
1: Okay, well, that's a lot. I'll try to take it in little pieces here. Um, I have a colleague, a good colleague at Tennessee uh, who works in a psychology department, uh, Todd Freeberg. And, he works on the language of the chickadees and titmice as a as a proto-language, basically. He's fascinated with the complexity of the calls that they produce. Um, in fact, they have so many different unique calls and notes uh, in their, basically, I'll call it a vocabulary, although a linguist would take issue with us equating the bird language to human language. Uh, in the general utilitarian sense of it, to me, they're really similar because Birds have notes, which are like letters, and calls, which are like words. And if you add all those things up and look at the number of unique elements in the language of chickadees and titmice, what Todd Freeberg points out is that there's enough unique elements in their language to encode up to something like two-thirds the information that the English language has. Now, that wow. doesn't mean they have that much information, you know, sort of uniquely coded in their in their uh, their, their vocalizations, but the point is there's just a huge complexity or diversity of different sounds that they make that, uh, that could be used in um, like a language. So he studies it from that perspective as an evolving, you know, looking at how languages evolve, you can actually study those species to understand how that can come about. So that's his perspective, and we've worked together on various things. My interest in that complexity is how reliably associated specific vocalizations are with specific situations in nature. So we already talked about the sort of mobbing call, this thing that sounds like. Psh, 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 psh. It's it's a portion of this thing we call the chickadee call. Most parrots, P-A-R, I-D-S, paridae, <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
1: they have a chickadee call that. Um, that has a bunch of D notes in it, and it's the D note section of that call which can be varied in a tremendous to a tremendous degree. They can vary the nature of the notes. For example, titmice can do a flat D note like D D D D D, or they can go D D D D D, where each note has an up upswing in the frequency. And they'll typically switch from the flat notes uh, when they're talking to their own kind to uh, the rising frequency, the what we call the F notes. Uh, when they're talking about a predator that they want other birds to come in and mob. So they can change the type of note. They can also change how quick the notes come. So if they go D, 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 they're not very excited about anything, but if they go D, D, D or D, 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 and add a whole bunch of D notes in quick succession, then they're very excited about something. And they tend to vary those elements of the chickadee call in a very particular way. If the predator is more dangerous, they have more notes, they're shorter, they're faster, they're closer together. And so you can, kind of, you, can, you can very easily tell whether they're talking about a really dangerous predator or one that, yeah, it's worth noting, but really isn't gonna terrify anybody. And, um, and so in order to determine just exactly how they vary the call and how reliable it is in terms of identifying different situations, we brought groups of titmice into aviaries and we presented them with different predators, live ones. We went to our local rehabber, um, wildlife rehab facility, and they lent us some owls of different species, the little screech owls, which are a very dangerous predator to the little birds in the forest. Uh, They lent us a great horned owl. They gave us an excipiter uh, that is like a a Cooper's Hawk. And then my grad student who did the work, she actually adopted a, a baby quail And that was our control animal, a bird that's about the size of a screech owl, but it's not a dangerous animal at all. So that was our control animal. And then we borrowed some snakes and cats from our friends as pets. And we put them all in cages near these birds and then recorded what the birds said about them. And their uh, calls varied in a highly predictable and identifiable way, depending on what animal they were looking at and how close the animal was sort of to, to the tip mice themselves. If the, if the animal is presented really close to a to a tip mouse, then they get more, more intensely fearful about it. Um, but if they were free flying in a big pen, they would just they'd talk about it in such a way. And we record those calls and then run some statistical analysis on the structure of the calls. And it was easy to tell what animal they were talking about in the end. So um, that gave us this really clear set of sort of, you know, recordings that we could then go out into nature and ask all the other birds in the forest, do you understand the difference between the call that the titmice gave to the little dangerous screech owl versus the big, fat, slow, great horned owl? Can you tell that the titmouse is talking about a predator that's dangerous or not? And every test we've done, the other species like cardinals, um, chickadees, you know, if we play titmouse calls to chickadees, if we play the calls to vireos, warblers, I mean, you name it, all these birds that live with the chickadees and titmice, they know exactly what they're talking about and how to respond appropriately. So, for example, the, the, the parrots and a lot of other species, too, they a lot of birds have a really high-pitched note that we call the, the seat note or the Z call. It's super high frequency. It's like 11 kilohertz.
0: I can small. barely hear it. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's so high pitch that as I get older, I'll, I'll quit doing research when I can't hear it anymore. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but when the, when the tip mice uh, give that call, all the little birds anywhere in the area, they just ditch and fly to cover because what it means is that there's a flying hawk, an occipitor, a really dangerous kind of bird predator, like a cooper's hawk or a sharp-shinned hawk that's about to attack them. And so when the titmice and chickadees give those calls, all the other birds just flee as quickly as they can and disappear into the vegetation. And I had a grad student who played that call to every bird in the forest. And we play it to squirrels and chipmunks and whatever we can get our hands on. Everything treats it like the most dangerous situation they've ever been in. They run, the squirrels flick their tails and run right up the tree. Um, all the birds just disappear and they stay really really quiet they freeze somewhere in the vegetation until they perceive that there's no real danger I mean we're talking 30 40 species in any one uh, set of trials that that understand that that's a really dangerous call a call about a dangerous situation so that's where my research has taken me and um,
0: I I was so impressed by that that actually in my bird language course, I have a whole module dedicated to this because it's so fascinating, and there's so many things dependent upon it, you know. And like you said, the whole pishing thing unlocks. And I noticed when I pish, if there're titmice and chickadees around, they pick up on it. Everybody comes in. If they're not around, I'm more likely to be ignored. <laughs> that may <might> be <laughs> a subsequent read. Probably means my pishing calls aren't very good. But uh, no, it's, it's just fascinating how that works. And is that where that term, and I, I can't remember if you came out with it or one of your, your colleagues, uh, the centuries of the forest uh, in terms of talking uh, yeah, about parrots? Yeah, centuries
1: of the forest. I, I like to call them community informants, where, um, and, you know, the reason that they give these calls, the reason they're so chatty to begin with is that, uh, that most species of chickadees and tip mice are social all year round. They have their families with them. They always have their mates. They're they mate for life or you know until one of them dies. And oftentimes they'll have kids from a, a previous nesting with them. So they they talk and they speak honestly about what they're observing because their kin are with them. We call that kin selection basically. The idea that, you know, we don't want to give our family wrong information. Like we might feed a stranger a, a lie just to get them off our tail or something like that but you don't do that to family so if you have family with you all the time uh, everything that you you're going to say about predators or food or you know risks and rewards in the environment you're going to be fairly truthful about it now Tim mice are not always truthful but we can talk about that later but um but the point is then that what they talk about and the amount that they talk Uh, it's just tremendous. They never shut up. They're always talking. They're always telling each other, hey, I'm over here. Come on over here. The food's really good here. The predators are really bad over there. Let's not go there. So uh, all the other birds that live with them who have, they're almost mute compared to the vocal complexity of the chickadees and titmice, um, they listen to them because there's so much great information that they can use as well about foods, about risks, about rich habitats, bad habitats, good habitats, and so forth. And there's been a lot of different kinds of studies that show that just the presence of titmice and chickadees can enhance the quality of life for other birds. For example, there's a really cool study in Ohio um, that uh, a scientist uh, Tom Grubb did years ago where he removed titmice from these little woodland patches in Ohio in the winter. and You know, Ohio in the winter is cold, snow everywhere, and there's a few species that flock up together to withstand the winter together. So you've got um, nuthatches and chickadees and titmice and a downy woodpecker. They all flock up and they spend the winter together, but if you remove the titmice, the the other birds in the flock, they actually um, got skinnier over the course of the winter than birds who still had their titmice with them. All that really useful information available from the titmice is um, it saves everybody time looking for predators. If someone else is doing it and telling them where everything is, all they need to do is forage. And so if you don't have that information, then you waste a lot of energy looking for predators or avoiding unsafe spaces where you, if you have the titmouse with you, you can actually go into those unsafe spaces when it's safe to do that. It's it's sort of like, you know, finding a good meal when you don't have your smartphone with you. You know, not knowing which restaurants are good, you have to try a bunch of them before you find a good one. Uh, all you got to do is Yelp it if you want to get to a good restaurant right away. So, lots more information is always better when that information is really useful and true. So, um, so it, it, evolution is not stupid. It 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 causes these birds to learn the language and to behave accordingly, and their lives are better for it. So this idea that the titmice and chickadees, because of their vocal complexity, are really hugely um, positive force in bird communities, I really think that's true.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, humans are the same way, right? If you can leverage somebody else's learnings, knowledge, or just division of labor, it, it just makes a vast difference. I mean, you know, we, we function on that premise today, hunter gatherer societies certainly function that way because you can't, and it's been proven, you know, individuals trying to survive on their own as humans anyway, you know, it's, you can only do it for so long. Right. And so, yeah, that is, that's amazing though, that, you know, birds have figured all of this out, you know, eons ago. Right. (laughs) And what uh, a couple of things that I, I like to use this analogy, at the beginning of my bird language course is uh, you know, when, when people, you know, start to learn this, that this is going on, it's kind of like if you grew up with a a foreign family in your house, you know, like you, you, you know, people just have exchange students, but almost like you had an entire family and, uh, you know, they were living with you, but you never learned their language, right? And then you, you go off to college, right? And you study this language and you come back and the family's still there for the holidays. And then you find out all this time, they were telling you all these things like, you know, hey, the mailman came by, dropped a package off at the door your Your brother stole your allowance. you know somebody tried to break in the window it's like you had no idea, right, but it's very important information
1: oh my God, yes, if I'd known the titmouse language, my brother wouldn't have been able to catch me as many right times exactly to beat me up you know,
0: and so we'll we'll jump into the practical aspect of it or the field aspect of it in a minute, but um, something else you you talked about too and i know you you've heard this story and i i know you know him uh klaus Zuberbühler. um you know in his work and i believe he's an uh, anthropologist if i remember correctly but yeah, his so work with primates. primates yeah with primates in africa and his he's got the most amazing story i i have it in the course um and it really goes to show that bird language uh, is just a a subset of greater animal language and he has a story about a, a leopard uh, that he's involved with and, you know, he figures out through his research and then has a, a personal interaction that, you know, all these animals are eavesdropping on everybody. And again, that's something I state from the beginning. Everything is listening to everyone all the time. And um, birds are just, as John Young says, the easiest way probably for humans to tune into because our our hearing um uh, is, is almost perfectly aligned with the um the sounds that they make their calls um and of course they're very visible so yeah it, it's just amazing that you know and of course native cultures know so much of this you know and have for thousands of years but it's so great to see that the science you know is now putting um you know the 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 theories if you will to this as to why this works and the specifics it's just fascinating
1: yeah so it's it's all about the good information. I'm pretty sure. And there's a recent study. Some I have some colleagues in Northern Europe who study these guys. They call them they call them ecological facilitators. Um, and, and they also call them um, attractants. Right, the, the the parrots that they live with, uh, because they know so much about the habitat, they're locals, they're residents. They don't migrate anywhere. They stay there all the time. They know everything. And then they have this rich language. Um, migrant birds when they when they come from, say, Southern Africa uh, all the way up to, you know, the Netherlands to breed, they will, um, they'll actually settle in higher numbers, more species and higher densities where the parrots are the, de- are the most dense. Mm-hmm. So they actually, they're like, because of their many benefits that they provide through their rich information source, they, um, they actually attract other species to nest with them. And they did a, a major comparison of habitats across Europe with and without high densities of parrots, and found much higher species diversity where you have higher densities and more species richness of the chickadees and titmice and tits. And uh, I'm sure that that's true here as well. Uh, Here in, in Florida in the wintertime, we have the richest, most diverse winter foraging flocks of anywhere in North America because, A, it's 70 degrees here during the winter a lot of times. And a lot of birds that come from the far north they stop here and they'll settle in and then they just group up with titmice and hang out so we have vireos and sparrows and um you know cardinals and towhees and all kinds of things that will flock with titmice sometimes uh or all the time uh, during the winter time whereas if you go to ohio you have flocks but there's only two or three species that can stand the winters there so um but where there are titmice, mice, you'll get more birds basically. And um, so. Uh...
0: Yeah, that's, you know, I, I, this isn't directly rated, but when I was in Europe, I would go, and I know you're not really supposed to do this, but I would play some chickadee calls from my iPhone. This is uh, in Italy, I believe, and one of the national parks there. And I mean, just instantly, the parrots, the chickadees over there were on it. You know, I mean, they knew exactly what it was. I'm sure the calls slightly different, the syllables, whatever, but it really is a, a global, or I guess the technical term, in the whole Arctic, right? You know, you're always going to get that response. Um, yeah,
1: that that's actually a feature of that family, the the parrots again. Uh, there was a, a researcher called Jack Hellman who noticed years and years ago. He published a paper in 1989 that basically said that chickadee call, the, the basic structure of it, there's a chick section and a D section, right? So a chickadee that gives a call, they'll go chick, chick, chickadee, dee, 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 D. So, you know, they all have that same structure. They have a an initial section, a lead section, and a following section. The following section always has D notes in it. And of course, you can identify the different species just by the way that they produce those calls. Their voices are different, the cadence is different, but the call structure is really, very much the same across the whole family, which means there's something like 53 species across North America, um, parts of Africa, and uh, and Eurasia, and you have these species all with the same the same highly conserved language. And so, if what you say is true, and I know it is, if you play a chickadee call of a certain kind, um, you know maybe identifying a small owl predator here in North America or in Europe all the birds that hear it, no matter where you are, are gonna understand the intensity of risk that's encoded in that call. Which means if you, like here in Florida, we've got maybe 40 or 50 species that know the language of the titmice, let's say 40. And then if you multiply that times 53 species of chickadees and titmice across the whole Arctic, so 50 bird species times 53 parrot species—that's a whole lot of birds that understand that language and change their behavior when they hear different calls from mice and chickadees. So it's 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 a phenomenon that's not—it's unique. Um, you know, primates aren't going to be—they don't—they're not going to have a system quite as complex and widespread as that. Um, it, you know, it's really unique to these guys. So that's why I'm so fascinated with the chickadees and tip mice, because they're just so, so extreme in that nature.
0: Yeah, you touch on something earlier. Um, and, you know, kind of some of your latest research or or how this can be used beneficially from an environmental standpoint. Can you talk about, you know, using this kind of analysis or acoustical analysis to understand kind of disturbed areas or impacts of, changes either roads or other noise cuz i know you, you have some data on that right
1: yeah so just as an example um uh i haven't published on this but but the plan is to try to get this together soon and that is to look across the calls that these guys make and show how they're associated with different conditions so uh in the lab you know you have recordings of tip, tip mice and chickadees and you can uh, let's say you want to you want to ask the question of do they speak differently when they're in a forest with, um, where the trees are thinner. Maybe there's been loggers and they've, they've thinned out the trees and the trees are further apart in one habitat than they are in another. Is there a way for us to listen to the chickadees and titmice and know that about the environment without actually going there? And, um, and the, the truth is it, you can. For one, they, every time a chickadee or chipmice flies, they make a little flight call. And so just recording the frequency of flight calls, you're gonna hear a lot more in the habitat where they have to bounce between trees more often in order to get the food they want. In a really densely packed oak forest here in Florida, they can stay in the same tree for a couple of hours foraging on all the insects in the bark of a really old oak tree. Um, But if they're in a, a pine forest with a lot of skinny trees that are far apart, they have to fly quite often to get enough food. So you can, you'll, you'll see a real difference in the frequency of food calls given. So that's one, one mark of that situation. The other situation is when they're flying through open areas in a wide open forest, woodland, they're more at risk. So they, they're, they're more on edge and they give more alarm calls when they're in that situation too, just to be sure that the family's watching for all the predators that could get them when they fly across these open areas because little birds are in trouble they're, they're more at risk of attack when they're in an open area. So um, these are the kinds of cues that we can summarize in the lab. You can, We use these computer programs that can, that can take a, a vast amount of, of audio and search it for specific call types and then let us know how many of each type of call there are in a given set of recordings. So that way we can summarize the numbers and then run some statistics on them to show that statistically, you get significantly more flight calls and alarm calls in a wide open forest where, the, where there's been some logging than you do in a forest that is uh, you know it's, it's less disturbed and so forth. So, so those are the kind of cues that we can start pulling from big data. You have all heard of big data. And there are also uh, a lot of people working on artificial intelligence or basically machine learning uh, algorithms that can, It's basically smart computers that say you tell it, okay, go in and get all these call types um, from all these many, many, many hours and days and weeks of recordings and tell us how many there are. You can have the computer just go chase those down. Um, And that technology is getting better and better and better. So it saves my undergrads from listening to recordings, you know, for 100 hours a week uh,
0: trying to get all this data. They can just be out in the field playing the zeke call all the time and watching the animals yeah a lot more
1: fun yeah i was gonna
0: say this this is the best grad program we need to give your information out here at the end you probably have a couple (laughs) hundred signups already um yeah that's very interesting um how that works and i you know my brain going and, and being an engineer like all the potential applications of that you know you mentioned ai and Having, I don't know if one of the goals is having kind of a baseline for each type of environment, but, you know, you go and if you have that information then you, you know, go and you record something out there, like you said, after there's been some logging or whatever and compare and you know you can get some, you know, probably pretty startling results on the impacts of this and again. To me, the fascinating thing is not just what it does to the parrots and, and potentially even the other birds, but a whole ecosystem can be, you know, impacted by this and you could maybe measure that just really because of the presence and calls of you know one family of birds that's that's astounding.
1: yeah. I mean, to be honest, um, the next thing i'd like to get a student to do is um uh, a few years ago, I had a student who did this she took these boom boxes. This was before we had a lot of digital audio, but she took, uh, you know, CD boom boxes and made these long recordings of different predator calls. So she had calls of jays and owls and hawks. And, and then we had a control playback with nothing going and she played these at a pretty big scale. We set up these plots and we had treatment and control plots. And then we put bluebird boxes out in the plots. And so we usually had two or three pairs of bluebirds nesting in each plot. And then we subjected the whole thing to these different calls. So some places were hearing a whole lot of crow calls, and other places were hearing a whole lot of hawk calls or owl calls. And then we compared the reproductive success of the bluebirds in the different treatments. And we found that birds in the control treatments uh, hatched more kids than birds in any of the predator treatments. And the reasoning we think is just that, is that the predators calling all the time makes the parents nervous. That influences the female's incubation behavior. She doesn't sit on the eggs as calmly and solidly as she needs to because she's always poking her head out the the door looking for predators. And so um, hatching success was significantly lower in the predator controlled areas. And I, I mean, not to be mean to bluebirds or anything, but what I really love to show is that titmouse calls about those predators would do the same thing to the bluebirds. That the bluebirds hearing a predator call, they might as well just hear a titmouse yelling about a predator and they're gonna do the same thing. They're gonna behave as if that predation threat is real. And I, um, we're gonna try to do that in the next couple of years just to show that the titmouse language is as motivating as the actual stimuli that they talk about, which is super cool in my mind. Um,
0: Well, would the one difference potentially be that if if you had a lot of parrots in the area that that might cause mobbing behavior, which would then lead to maybe fewer predators because they'd be outed and so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. We don't wanna attract a whole bunch of predator or a whole bunch of animals to the plots so what you do is you play those alarm calls with big spaces of time in between them, mm. and that you know usually if you want to get a mob together you you pitch consistently or constantly for like five minutes. So we'll do you know a few chickadee calls here and there so that it doesn't really generate those numbers, but you know it does influence the birds, and um, and it could be that in the previous study all those crow calls and whatnot might have brought more crows. I mean we don't know. Um, we can measure those things as we go. But um, but anyway, that's the science of it. Um, and uh, and I find that talking about the science, sometimes people's eyes roll back in their heads. Uh, but it, 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 it's been a, a really fantastic discipline for me to work in as a scientist and revealing a lot of truths about nature. But I also really enjoyed learning the bird language approaches that you guys use in the field with the tracker students. That was amazing to me. What, well, that-
0: let's jump into that just before we do i had one question on your other this is really fun i i i think from a science perspective um if you're at all interested in ecology um you know this type of stuff is not boring it's not roll your eyes in the back of your head you know it's amazing um you were telling me something about uh well, first of all, you call parrots. if uh, I know you mean this in a loving way because you have a, a kind of a bond with them, uh, but mobsters. Right.
1: Yeah. And
0: right. And, um, you know, and they can uh, really gang up on predators and but they also have this phenomenon called acoustical crypsis. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 So, so uh, I had a student come through recently who wasn't interested. He, we wanted to find out about the language of aggression in the titmice and chickadees. So not the language of you know aggression towards predators, but towards each other. You know they they're really they're intense scrappers when it comes to protecting their own territories from their own kind. Uh, chickadees and titmice will fight their own species, but we have Carolina chickadees and we have tufted titmice here, and both of those species will attack the other species too. They're they're so closely aligned in their use of resources that they see each other as predators as uh, competitors too so um so he set up these playback trials where during the breeding season now usually we work in the winter when we work with the predator stuff but in the breeding season you can play a chickadee a chickadee or titmouse call a song and they'll come bombing in to kick out the intruder from their territory because when they hear when they hear another bird they assume there's an intruder there so he used that to get them To tell us what they say when they're a little bit mad or a little bit aggressive versus when they're really aggressive. And, you know, you and I have been talking about how these guys influence the behaviors of all these other species in the woods, right? Well, a persistent alternative question that we have in our lab is do titmice and chickadees ever care what the other species of birds uh, do for them? Do they ever listen to the other birds? Do they ever respond to the presence of, say, cardinals and vireos and those guys? Or do they just go about their own business and they've got all these other birds tailing them and listening to them, but they don't give a whit about what these other birds are doing or what they think about titmice? So uh, we also had that question with this study. So the idea being, when, uh, when we started doing the study, we, we'd play back a titmouse call and titmice would come in and start acting all aggressive and tough, we also noticed that a bunch of other species would hang around and watch the fight. So chickadees, or sorry, not chickadees, but uh, cardinals and woodpeckers and jays would all just come in and hang around. Not, they wouldn't talk a lot, they would just be sitting there watching the fight. And so that became one of our questions with the study was not only what do they say when they're really mad, but do these other species presence affect how they fight? And what we found was astounding really the Fight
0: yeah. Club, the Fight Club effect, the right? The Fight Club
1: effect, right. So you guys remember the uh, that 1989 movie with Brad Pitt where uh, basically the idea was that these guys were wanting to just, you know, get off steam and they wanted to fight each other and make each other bloody and they didn't want to get interrupted by cops or people who thought that was a stupid thing to do. They just wanted to have a Fight Club and get on with it. So they'd they'd, uh, go in these cellars in New York City and hide themselves. And it would be like, you don't talk about Fight Club because we don't want anybody breaking up the fights. If you want to be in Fight Club, you got to shut up. Nobody talks about Fight Club, right? So you just come, you fight, you get bloody, you feel better, you go home. And so the whole point then was to be quiet about it, to avoid trouble, right? So, um, So that's what we found out the tit mice actually do. So when there's a big audience around them, the titmice would come in and they would fight hard, they'd fight long, and they'd fight loudly when there were uh, cardinals and and woodpeckers and other little birds and stuff watching the fight. The more species that were present at the fight, the harder and the louder they would fight. And when they're fighting loudly, they have these calls that they call, like titmice have a call they call the squeal. And it's just this really loud, easy to easy to listen to uh, call I mean, it's easy to hear it's really really loud plus they use the chickadee calls in their songs um, and if it was a chickadee the chickadees actually have this call they call it gargle and it's this crazy loud complicated call that you also is unmistakable when they get really mad they use that call and um, so what we noticed though was when there was no audience at titmice fights they would not use the squeal. They would switch to another call type that we call the flutter call. And it's very high pitched. Again, it's around 10 or 11 kilohertz, which is actually outside the hearing range of most hawks and owls. Their hearing usually only goes up to about six or seven kilohertz. Uh, a colleague of mine in, at the uh, University of Purdue, they um, at Purdue University, they, they studied that and found that they really can't detect calls that are higher frequency than 6 or 7,000, 7,000 hertz. So what those calls are is, you know, they get up close and they start giving the flutter call and the birds would um, fight really vigorously physically, but they would do it quietly, right? So, I mean, we were doing playbacks, but the birds would get close to the speaker and they'd give those flutter calls instead of and, squeal calls.
0: And the C call is very high frequency as well, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: it's a different yeah. call. It's very yeah, different. Yeah,
0: very different, but your... same idea. The raptors wouldn't, won't pick it up. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So if
1: you're trying to hide from a predator that you actually do see, then you give the high C call. If you're trying to hide from a predator, you might not know whether it's there or not and you're fighting, then you have this other call that's like an aggressive fight call, but it's super quiet. It's like a whisper. Can barely hear it and um, and so basically they they have the same rules of fight club that people do is that if you don't want to get interrupted and you want to really get in there and fight the guy um, you do it quietly so you give the flutter call instead of the squeal call so um, that that idea that idea of acoustic crypsis where you're you're communicating but you're doing it quietly um, it does arise in the animal world it's only been documented a few times but it probably occurs a lot um, there's a, the, I think it's right whales, when uh, when uh, right whale mamas are with their little babies, they have a call that they frequently use, but they'll give it much louder when there's no babies around. But if the babies are around, they sort of whisper to the babies with this call. They, they, they decrease the amplitude, not the frequency, but they change how loud it is. So they basically whisper when the babies are around, so as not to attract predators. And
0: and there's a devious aspect to this as well, right, in terms of um, when they're using the um, the more audible version, uh, for lack of a better technical term, when everyone's around uh, watching.
1: Oh,
0: uh, yeah. yeah, can you tell us about that, the yeah, theory so, about, uh, yeah, so because because obviously predators can hear that, right, and yeah. draws attention.
1: Yeah, the explanation for why they, they fight really loudly when everybody else is there is just that mice aren't that big. They're about 30 grams. And and any cardinal or jay or woodpecker is a lot bigger than they are. And if, if a hawk is attracted to the fight because of all the noise, and they frequently are, I've noticed a lot of times when we do playbacks of any kind, if the, if the stimulus is loud, you'll get predators flying by, checking it out just to see what's going on. And so a fight is no different. They definitely are attracted to fights. And so the idea is, though, that by fighting loudly when there's all these other birds around, well, the predator's going to take the biggest meal they can get, right? Who wouldn't want to supersize when they go to McDonald's? So you take the biggest Big Mac that's available and that's going to be a woodpecker or a cardinal, not the fighting titmouse. So the titmouse doesn't care at that point. It's like, yeah, sure, let's bring the predators in. I'm safe and I can get my job done here against this other titmouse. You guys want to watch, that's fine. But, you know, just so you know, I'm calling in, the predators might come in.
0: Lessons competition. That's dastardly. Wow.
1: Yeah. So then when, uh, when they're all by themselves though, they whisper because they would be the only snack at the fight if the creditor did come in. So
0: amazing. Amazing. Well, yeah. let's uh, yeah, let's switch gears a little bit. And you alluded to it uh, a little while ago. Talk about um your experience of bird language in the field or on the ground. So obviously you've been doing all this, you know, fantastic work in the lab and your grad students and, you know, making these discoveries Uh, but after years of doing that you had an experience with with John Young and a bird language sit and can you just talk about that experience and what it meant to you both personally but also professionally you know and and how it changed your view of your work and you know even today how it affects you
1: yeah sure so I I remember um, you contacted me started the whole thing for me after this New York Times article came out on one of my colleagues, I think he's in Colorado, that uh, they are interviewing him, and he mentioned my name, and you just went ahead and found me and called me and asked me about the work I was doing, and then you told me about John Young and and the book that he wrote, you know, What the Robin Knows, and I, after I talked to you, I, I looked into it. I looked up your websites and this whole idea of bird language as a as a highly developed skill that trackers use in order to find wildlife or avoid trouble when when humans are out in the the bush. And um, so I read the book and and then I kept talking with you and you said there was gonna be some sort of a uh, a workshop in San Francisco, a place I always like to visit. So uh, I flew out there and stayed with one of my grad students who lives in San Francisco and she came to the workshop too. She had finished her PhD a few years before and um, we both came. And um, so for her, it was completely outside of her research area. And um, she studied bees when she was in my lab, not birds at all. She said she didn't like birds, but she went to it with me anyway. And, uh, and so we went through this workshop where what, what John taught us was, well, a bunch of things. Um, one is that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the lab or in an aviary watching what the birds do under conditions that we create. But what he taught me was, the value of just spending a whole lot of time out in nature watching what birds are doing in response to things that happen in nature. And given my research focus, it became really obvious to me fast um, how varied the little bird's behavior could become um, in response to all these other birds that are around them. Everything, like you said, everything listens to everything. And it, it ha- they have to because of predation, because of access to resources. You have to be efficient and fast at living when you're a little bird, or, or you're, gonna, you're just gonna, not going to live. So, so what I learned, uh, the second thing was, so, so first is lots of time observing, and you start to put together the whole story of why an animal does what it does and responds to other species the way they respond. The other thing I learned was if you put a whole bunch of people who may not know very much, but they've got eyes and ears, you put them in a grid pattern and sit them down and get them into an organized observation of nature. And let's say they're all set out in this over this geographical area that spans a whole lot more space than any one person can watch. That's what we call the bird sit, right? Everybody's sitting there. And then every once in a while, we all write down our observations of what's happening all at the same time, we coordinate our observations. And then we come together and we tell the story of what happened in that landscape. Uh, after we're done, I was I was blown away at all the stuff I didn't see by myself and behaviors that I saw that I couldn't interpret correctly until I got other people's observations about what was happening, say behind me or way over the other side of the hill. So one thing I'll just share with from that that I learned that I just felt so stupid when um at first, but then I, I learned the magic of this of this approach was that I sat down And I, uh, for my, my part, I got this little place. I couldn't see anybody else. And I was kind of surrounded by shrubbery and there was a hill behind me. I'm like, geez, I can't see anything here. This is going to be boring. I think,
0: I think we're in Presidio park, if I remember correctly. And, and, and for those listening, yeah, this is called a group sit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I couldn't see anything. I'm like, well, this is going to be a boring 15 minutes. So I sit down and I do see some little birds, some sparrows and um, I don't know, something else flying around in these, in these, shrubs and they were feeding in the shrubs. Some of them were watching, looking around, but there was a flock of birds. And and uh, all of a sudden I was looking somewhere else and all of a sudden I look in front of me and all those little birds were right in front of me on the ground. They had left the shrubs and gone to ground really close to me. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I must just be projecting such <laughs> a, a quiet demeanor uh, these guys are just they either don't notice me or they, they they like me i'm i'm one of the you know part of the crowd whatever you're
0: zenned out yeah i was
1: zenned out and i just disappeared <laughs> in the landscape all of a sudden i'm so good at that right so i thought well that's pretty cool and then uh about three or four minutes later they all flew back up into the bushes and and left me and um and i remember that that one behavior and i had it written down in my notes and the timing of all that and everything so then we're we all got together and we're going through uh each five minute period and John was really skillful at asking everyone in the group to add their observations during the, each of those five minute periods that we did the observation and I started to see this whole dramatic play playing out over across that entire landscape and, um, and I finally figured out at the end of it why the birds did what they did near me. Those little sparrows flew in and sat next to me because some woodpecker had flown where I couldn't see it behind me, being pursued by a cooper's hawk. So it was just behind me. And of course the birds are quiet, they're just flying. But one of the observers that was on the other side of that whole interchange wrote it all down. This was the most exciting thing that he or she had seen. And uh, you know this—they both disappeared in the in the shrubbery over there. But that was exactly the same time as when all those little birds appeared right next to my knees on the ground. I was sitting there cross-legged, and they were just surrounding my knees so close I could almost touch them. And when I brought that up, I said, "Wow, that's cool. That's coincidence that happened right at the same time. All these birds came close to me." And John's just like, "Obviously, it's because." they were using you as a foil, right? You're this big, okay, slow ape, and you're sitting down, so you're not that dangerous, but no hawk is going to fly down in front of you where you can grab them. Um, those little birds are completely safe next to you because you're also a predator, but not one that's going to hurt them. So I, I'm saying, and, oh it, my god.
0: That's, and we call that safety barrier. A safety yeah. barrier. Yeah. That
1: was me. I was providing them a safety barrier. I thought they were like, worshiping me or something. But no, they were using me, the little guys, um, as a safety barrier away from this big hawk. So they were hoping the hawk would hit me in the head instead of them. So oh well. But I was fascinated by that. Um in that that sort of group sit, you can put together a story that is so obviously makes sense, right? About what's happening. Whereas when you're by yourself, you see a lot of things sometimes. You can't quite explain, because you can't see all the causes, all the things that are happening in the landscape to cause those behaviors. And um, so I've used those the same techniques. And of course, it was great. We actually taught a class together once, Lee, with some of my students, and they still talk about that that class as opening their eyes to, um, to, to learning how to interpret what's happening around you in nature. And, and just the, the, the complexity and the diversity of things that are going on out there and how you can actually uh, become so that you're a member of that landscape and you can understand what's happening. So I, I you know, use that in my class. I mean, it used to be you give them slideshows and you take them out and you do bird ID and stuff like that. Now I make them just get out there and sit and put the stories together, and they're just on fire when they come back, my students, about all the things they saw and how much sense it makes. And then, then the science, the scientific stuff. Can be integrated into that framework a lot more easily once they're once they can see in a sort of simple, you know, animal way um, what's really going on out there.
0: Well, I think you just explained that very eloquently about how these two different worlds, if you want to call it, really mesh. They go together. You know, we're in a high-tech society, right? And Mm -hmm. you talked earlier about some of the benefits of the science of this, but having this on the ground you know, really enables you to have a contextually a much uh, better understanding of all this and, and actually I found from teaching this and I've incorporated this in my class and we have another module in the group sit that you gave such a great example earlier and and you know this is before we were thinking in the terms of or before he was thinking in terms of bird language but. I think this can spawn so many other potential research opportunities you know things to investigate just based on what you know potentially someone observes a student a grad student mm. um, every time i do one of these conduct one of these group sits and they take a while it's not so much the the sit part which is typically about 45 minutes but it's the debrief after because there's so much that goes on and you know every one of them's different but almost without exception i I recently i did one as last year but uh i had this really good birder um from the uk in it and you know knew a lot right and we were spaced out and i'd gone over a few signature movements of what we call shapes of alarm but hadn't really explained what they were just said hey be on the lookout and um, a couple of uh, people in the sit a couple of students saw this one particular signature and you know they didn't know what it was, and they kind of told me in between. I said, "Don't say anything yet." And another group of people saw, actually, something else—the cause of it. And we came together and discussed, and it was actually a fox who had been oh. moving through. And I had seen the what we call the the hook or the popcorn. Popcorn, which, yeah. Yeah, and, and this. Uh, this gentleman from the UK had seen actually saw the fox and he was just blown away by the whole deal right he's like uh-huh. I never imagined you know that you could interpret that and you know there's these old stories um, you know maybe like the Chiricahua Apaches or Geronimo that actually they used bird language not only to know like cavalry was coming after them uh, but maybe even there's some stories that they were so good that they could mimic baseline behavior of birds and in doing so restore the other birds to come back, you know, again, because, um, you know, even some of the Europeans knew some of this. They're like, oh, that's all baseline. You know, that's, yeah. they can't be over there, right? There's no disturbance over there. So it, yeah. it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah
1: and I love the, the, the way that you guys break it up into sort of baseline and alarm. You know, I would always try to convey all the different kinds of vocalizations, but the idea being that you can classify them really simply as hey, all the birds are just calm and doing their thing. They're not worried about anything that's baseline behaviors. You know, they're, they're singing and fighting and foraging and doing all the business of life. Whereas um, when they're alarmed, they go quiet um, or they're giving some sort of alarm calls. And, and birds, no matter what species, if they're in an alarm state, they sound and act really similarly. So it gives students an easy access to all the species at once where they don't even know the species, but they know their behaviors now in a really simple, straightforward way that helps them feel more confident about um, going forward with their learning about the the system. So I really like that as well.
0: Yeah, and I also want to add too, it's not to diminish individual sits. They're still, just yesterday I was out on a deck, I was visiting my parents' place and uh, I had a Cooper's Hawk fly over me, literally six or seven feet right over my head. And he was doing kind of a you know fighter plane. if you've seen the new top gun right he was doing this like low approach sneaking in or she was and and made it i mean it came in like unannounced the other birds were still singing um and then they realized you know a minute or two later that you know he was in the air and it all went quiet except for this one lesser goldfinch right really small bird (laughs) probably (laughs) "Well, i'm not in danger although even eventually he or she kind of went quiet on that but yeah, it's just incredible what you can see when you tune into this. And again, um, have this in a, talk about advanced shapes of alarm, this idea of a cascading alarms and how all the other animals respond to it. Like you said, the squirrels, the deer, and, you know, Klaus Uberbueller talks about that as well in his story. Can you um, just also talk about, you, you touch on it a little bit, but why is this important in the field part? You know, bird language or even a discipline like tracking, why do you think that's helpful to students, uh, you know, who, who their job requirements for them to spend most of their time in the lab now, right? You know, the vast majority of these disciplines. Uh, but why do you think it's valuable for them? And even by extension, just, you know, the public in general.
1: Well, you know, I, I'm still old school. I've spent a lot of time in the field in my life. And, um, and just learning the bird language approaches that you guys use. It helped me learn more about the landscape more efficiently and faster than than i thought i i could learn so you know that uh, (laughs) it enhanced my humility thinking about all the stuff um that i could have known about maybe more easily had i had i started where you guys uh, teach your things so i like to start my students there just so that they can feel really confident about interpreting what they see and going out there and always be open to seeing something new and and knowing that it it probably has a cause and effect that they could unravel with science or or just with more observation. Um, I think one of the things that becomes really clear, especially if they go through the whole sit and debrief process is that even people who know nothing can make keen observations about nature. It's in our DNA. It doesn't matter if you've been in an office your entire life, your DNA allows you to sit there and put together two and two and figure out what's going on in a natural landscape. And I think for scientists in training who are learning in the lab, they're learning all these high powered quantitative techniques and they're pretty full of themselves. Then they go out in the field and do research in places where people already live like farmers or native peoples or you know, just anybody who lives in a place is gonna be able to make observations and convey knowledge to a scientist who's new to that area. Um, and it, as long as a scientist, I think it gives us humility that anyone can make these observations that can be really valuable and lead us to greater understanding. And, and I impress that on my students. It's like, no matter how much scientific knowledge you have, no much time you have in the lab, you really have a lot to learn from local people, wherever you are, in cities, farms, wherever you are, and uh, don't discount what they know. Now I learned that lesson a long time ago um, from a farmer in Chile, Southern Chile, who uh, was, he befriended us and helped us do our research on birds there. And I remember going to him and saying, I was so excited about seeing this little wild cat that really was unknown to science. Nobody had published any papers about this little Oncifelis weenia they had. It was this cool little ferocious arboreal cat and I was like wow first time science has ever rec- you know documented this and he just sat down and read me the riot act he goes you want to know about those little you know he said something which is not repeatable about those little guys um let me tell you all about that cat it eats all my chickens it comes at night it it hides in the hay barn up top it has all these behaviors. I know exactly where they live. I know how they raise their babies. I know how many babies they have. You want to know something about that cat? You just ask me. And of course, he doesn't like the cat at all. But he just said, you white people, you come down here and you tell us what we know, and what we don't know. And well, why don't you just ask me sometime? <laughs> so I never made that mistake again because he was one of our best friends in the area. And I, I felt so so much humility um, that now I, I recognize opportunities to teach that to my students and your work really does help us, um, give them self-confidence in their own abilities. It also tells them that other people have these same abilities and that these ancient skills could easily have been honed to a really high level by people that have, you know, come and gone long ago and that, that, that knowledge is passed down from ancient times and that, um, that we all have that capability. I think that's that's a magnificent lesson right there.
0: Yeah, that's something that um, you know I've heard it said a number of times. That kind of science is now catching up to what uh, a lot of traditional or indigenous people have known for a long time, and and of course adding a a lot to it as well. You know, more detail and. Um, so again, I think they go really well together, but certainly that's true. I think we, you know, we've all been guilty in our modern culture of being dismissive sometimes of people yeah. that we think are less learned or, you know, and we actually have a lot to learn with them or from them. And yeah, John Young also has a number of stories and I've seen it as well. The people I've been out in the field with who, you know, very, uh, you know, well-educated, highly thought of, you know, erudite you know, researchers but some of the field skills, and I think you've talked about this at Boar, have, have been lacking, you yeah. know, and, um, you know, they're they're going out looking for sign of a particular animal. Um, I know he did this in Washington State, and, you know, they're having trouble finding, you know, where um, mountain lions are for a study of bears. And he's like, well, here, come over here. I'll show you, you know, because he, you know, between bird language and tracking. And so, you know, the field skills, I think, are still relevant, um, even though, you know, we may be um you know less dependent necessarily on some aspects and more in the lab DNA analysis, but you know you still have to know where the animals are, and uh yeah. I think it's very valuable. Do you mind also uh just saying a word to on uh, you know uh your own experiences from a personal nature about you know bird language and you know just kind of the meditative nature or you know how it's affected you? I know you have told me previously that, you know, kind of reinvigorated, you know, your career and and why you do what you do.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I think I do remember this one time I was having sort of an existential crisis about every time I went into nature, I felt like, especially if I was with people, everyone was always asking me, well, what bird is that? What bird is that? What I, you know, what's the ID, what's the ID? And I, I felt like I couldn't go into nature without stressing over being able to identify everything I saw all the time, right? I actually put a name on every species. It was exhausting after a while. I don't like to go birding in my off time, even though I, because I study birds, you know, full time. It's sort of, I was it was in this joyless period about 15 or 20 years ago in my, in my my, field, just because I was just sort of tired of the whole scientific approach, you know, that real sort of categorization of everything and, and so forth. So, um, I think I actually took a vision quest and, and took on that question at one point and I pondered it for several days and I and uh, I may have arrived to this partly on my own during that time, but once I learned what you guys do I realized. How meditative it becomes when you really don't worry about ID you just you just basically grok the landscape, like, you know, it's an old word from a book where you just sort of take in all at once the meaning of something without putting a name on it, you just understand it, and I felt like your techniques allow a person to go into nature and just open up and take it in, and um, if you read the the works of, um, who's the guy who wrote Last Child in the Woods?
0: Uh, Richard Love.
1: Yeah, so he, he makes this really clear distinction, I'll never forget about two types of attention that that humans have. One is that goal-oriented attention. You sit down at the computer and I've got like 50 tasks today I have to complete. And it's like knocking one of them off after another. You get satisfaction, but it's exhausting to do that. That's the kind of attention that takes such focus and mental focus and mental energy that by the end of the day, you're just like, Oh, I'm done. I'm fried. But there's another kind of attention where, uh, I forget what he calls it. it it's like um, the, the attention of joy. I forget what he calls it. Do you remember? It's
0: uh, like, not, I know what you're talking about. I don't remember oh, it's the exact wonder. It's, Yeah, it's, that's right. Wonder. Yeah. Wonder. Yeah.
1: So just opening yourself up
0: and yeah, the awe. Your
1: attention to the world. Yeah. And allowing yourself to be in wonder of the world. All kinds of information is coming into you and you're learning and you're processing these things, but it's not exhausting. It actually is invigorating because you feel more and more a part of your surroundings as as that time goes on and nature really has a way of of invigorating you if you let it um, in that you know put yourself in that sense of wonder which to me is a it's not quite the same as meditation per se but it is a meditation that i i teach my students uh, using a lot of the skills those sense meditations that you guys do I love those. And my students just eat them up. They're just on fire after they, they, you know, listen like a fox or a deer or whatever it is, or they, 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 they use their eyes like an eagle, just trying to see whatever they can see. And then, um, you know, once they've done those sense meditations, my students are in a much better space and they're not freaked out about, you know, being in a class and having to learn everything that comes at them. So um, I find that, that, taking that aspect, it certainly invigorated, reinvigorated my approach to being in nature. I don't worry so much about IDs, because someone might ask me a bird that I actually can't identify, and I'll say, well, I'm not really sure, but look, he's, he's, he's given an alarm call about the predator that's over there on the line. And that completely takes their attention away from what they wanted to know in the first place, and it takes me off the hook. So, you know, I found the bird language is a lot easier, because there's so much more going on.
0: and and there's no one answer to it right so um well and i i've had so many experiences again being out with really good birders and you know and and we all do this you know it's it's our culture right but so focused on the id or the song there'll be this big alarm or this whole thing going on and they'll miss the whole thing yeah right and right and And I think what you said in that story earlier about we were in the Presidio and, you know, the safety barrier is that, you know, you're you we are part of the story. And there is a there's a big wonder and awe in that. And again, the Klaus Zuberbuehler story to me is just the best way of, you know, anyone ever representing that. Um, It's just fantastic. And that's ultimately, you know, I, I think. There's a lot of benefits, of course, to studying these, right? And whether you do it in the lab, but particularly, you know, when you're out there in the field doing a sit, what have you. Uh, but that's really where the nature connection comes from, and that's ultimately why I do this because I think it's something that you know we're all desperately in need of, you know. And like you said, it's a completely different type of attention, and it's relaxing, it's invigorating, and so. Yeah.
1: And I'll just share one last thing that that science tells us, as well as uh, just observations in nature. Science tells us that individual birds, like mockingbirds, can recognize very well human faces. And and birds that live in an area, there is no doubt that the crows, the jays, every bird that lives in your backyard knows you as an individual. That individual, those individual birds that live in your yard day after day, they know you just as well as they know any one of their other neighbors. They know your, they know who you are. They know whether you're mean, or you throw rocks, or you you uh, they also know your cat, your dog. They probably know your best friends. And they categorize you as safe or unsafe individuals. And um, uh, so I mean, the, there's a scientific study that shows that uh, this is a cool one that one of my colleagues did here at University of Florida. He had a whole team of undergraduates out searching for nests of mockingbirds on campus so that they could track the reproductive success and do some scientific studies of demography or population trends on campus. So they needed that data. So every student had their own four or five nests that they would check regularly as they go back and forth from classes. And one of the students, I you know, had this observation that when other students came close to their mockingbird nests, the mockingbird didn't care. But if she, as soon as she approached the nest to poke into it and, and count the babies and stuff the adults would attack her and bash her in the head and do all kinds of nasty stuff to her. And she was kind of indignant. It's like, why do they, why are they so mad at me? Well, it's obvious because you're going to poke in their nest and bother the kids. So they did this study of just how well the birds recognize their own nest searchers. And so they, they made a video about it. And um, they took these, um, this one, one woman who was one of the nest searchers, she was blonde and she was like five, five, four, or something like that. And they dressed her up in uh, khaki shorts and a khaki shirt and they put a blue backpack on her back. She had long blonde hair. So they found a whole bunch of other students that had long blonde hair or about her size. They gave them khaki clothes and a blue backpack and 10 different women. And they walked them by one by one past this nest of the mockingbird and the mockingbird completely ignored nine of the 10. But when her nest searcher walked by and there were hundreds of other students around walking to class the bird came bombing out from a building and just smacked her right in the head, picked her out of hundreds of students and completely ignored nine other really similar looking women. And um, they have that on video. And it's just so obvious to me how intelligent these animals are about, and they make individual relationships across species all the time and, and individual enmities they have. So to me that actually makes me feel much bigger part of my own neighborhood, knowing that this mockingbird, I go out in the morning every day and I have a fig tree that comes right full of figs in the summertime. And it's me and the mockingbird as to who gets the ripe figs, right? So I go out there at dawn when he's just waking up and he's sitting on the wire and I run to the fig tree and he flies into the fig tree and we both are going after the figs at the same time. And it just helps me to know that that's the same guy every day. And he knows me and I know him.
0: Well, you better be careful. You may be telling all the other birds, calling you a thief.
1: <laughs> yeah, but they don't get up as early as me.
0: All right. Yeah, that's matter. true. I have to that's... get up early
1: to get my figs from him.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I just, you know, in terms of wrapping here, again, that's another great example of, you know, how humans, even in a cityscape, were part of the story. And if you start tuning into this, you'll just start, even if you're doing something else, you'll start just watching other things happen literally just two days ago, I was driving close to my house and I saw, you know, looked like a vulture fly right over the top of my car. But, you know, I'm always kind of just paying attention and well, not always, but a lot of the time. And I noticed, wait a minute, there was a white stripe on that tail. And I was like, that's a zone tail hawk when I'm really on the edge of their territory. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I saw there was something in its talons. And it alighted in a tree right behind me. I I did slow U-turn, parked the car and and watched him or her disassemble this white winged dove Ooh. and watch the feathers coming down. And you know, they don't take, they're not exhibitors, right? But of course, like most raptors, they'll take the occasional bird. And these guys typically nest in, in a riverine uh environment. And I'm sure he had come up and it's been a brutally hot summer here. So, you know, he probably getting whatever food he can. Everything's out looking for food. And uh, anyway, and then afterwards, I picked up some of the feathers and most exhibitors, when they pluck feathers, you might see a little line on the quill, but they usually don't snap, but he had snapped them off, but no damage to the plume. And so again, just from a science perspective, you know if you were out in the field whatever that would be a clue i mean you may not know for sure it's his own tail hawk or but it might be that or red tail but all these things just weave together you know in terms of the the empirical the field and and you know what you can go back and do in the lab so i really appreciate uh your time uh katie and just you have such a body of knowledge it's a pleasure hearing you you know not only talk about your discoveries but your stories and for everybody out there, you know, I, I cannot recommend uh, Bird Language enough, and her work, um, I reference it a lot in my course, um, there's an article out there, if you're really interested in the science aspect, uh, called uh, what, Why Pishing Works. Uh, which I know that's your grad student, and it's, it's a wonderful article. Um, and if you have any other questions, feel free to reach out. Uh, again, she's professor at a University of Florida. So thank you so much for your time. This has been a, just a joy.
1: It's always so fun to talk to you, Lee. Let's get in the field again sometime
0: soon. All right, we'll check in with you again in another couple of years and see what you're up to.